Good evening, this is Doug Taylor. Welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, April 18th, 2010. And we are starting tonight in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 3. And the verse reads, He who guards his mouth guards his soul, and he who opens his lips, it is a destruction to him. He who guards his mouth guards his soul, and he who opens his lips, it is a destruction to him. So as we generally do with the Proverbs that we uh, analyze, first thing we do is ask, what are the questions? What questions come to mind as we read this that we would need to understand in order to uh, appreciate and understand what King Solomon is trying to teach us with this verse. And Terry and Lori, congratulations on that, and it sounds like you'll have an opportunity to uh, share some Torah ideas and Torah learning with those grandchildren. So I hope that is a good situation for you. Any thoughts on questions on the verse? He who guards his mouth guards his soul, and he who opens his lips, it is a destruction to him. So let me suggest some possibilities. First question would be, what does it mean to guard your mouth? It says, he guards his mouth, guards his soul. What does it mean to guard one's mouth? And what does that have to do with guarding one's soul? And Terry and Lori, very good. What Guarding it from what? I mean, King Solomon's not really telling us that. You know, is that from tooth decay? Or, you know, what is he referring to here? Um, and then it says, you know, he who opens his lips, it is a destruction to him. Well, how is it destruction to open your lips? I mean, people do that all the time. We all open our lips. So what is King Solomon trying to get at here? So Rabbi Moskowitz's interpretation uh, went like this. There are different levels of people. And we talked last week about uh, a couple of different types one called a Tom, and one called a Yosha. Uh, and we also talked about a Tzaddik, a righteous person. A Tom is a person that has no emotional blockages that prevent him from doing what he desires to do, whether or not it's good or evil. Um, there's, there's nothing stopping him. So, and we used the example last week, you know, a, a person who can't put a worm on a hook in order to fish for food, because it's like, oh, they just, they just can't do that. That's an emotional blockage, because in reality, you know, if the person's starving, they need to eat. So the person's got some kind of a blockage. A Tom is a person who doesn't have any of those. They have the ability to do what they want to do. And of course they can choose to, you know, to take that in a good direction or a not good direction, but they don't have, um, an emotional blockage. So that's a desirable trait. Um, 
And a, a yosher is a person that studies. So he investigates life. He becomes a wise person. He has a love for truth, a desire to, uh, to learn, loves learning. Um, and so if you're in the position of being at the level of a Tom, where you don't have any emotional blockages, you have the freedom to become a yosher, a person that studies, that desires truth, and is involved in the world of, of learning and, and ideas. So on this verse, Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to say, um, if you're a Tom and learning about the harm of speaking, you have to know that um, in some cases you might say things that are bad. And so the best protection is not to say anything at all in certain situations. However, uh, because the Tom realizes, you know, he's, he doesn't have the knowledge, he's learning about the harm that can come from speaking inappropriately. But a Yosher, he can, he can go ahead and speak in a situation because his mind is focused on speaking the truth. The Yosher is a person who thinks in a certain way based on truth. And stupidity won't come out of his mouth because he's, he doesn't think that way. But according to Rabbi Moskowitz, this verse, person, this verse is talking about a Tom. And he doesn't have that training yet. So he has to, um, to guard his mouth. Now, sometimes mouth literally means speaking, but in uh, the previous verse, the one uh, that we did last week, uh, the word mouth referred to what's on a person's mind. Now the verse itself in the Hebrew doesn't say Tom or Yosher. This is Rabbi Moskowitz's interpretation. So, <clears throat> The person who is careful to guard his mouth, to guard his speech, what he says, can avoid the mistakes and the negative consequences that can happen to a person as a result of ill-spoken words, things that maybe were said in haste without thinking through and so forth. But a person that guards his mouth, he catches himself. So he is essentially guarding his soul, that is his life. From, from harm and potential destruction. But the fool who opens his mouth without thinking, okay, he is causing himself harm and ultimately could cause himself destruction. So Rabbi Moskowitz is suggesting that the verse is referring to the Tom, the person who still has to learn about the negative impact of speech and so the one who guards his mouth is careful about what he says and in certain circumstances would de decide you know, not to say anything at all. He is guarding his soul. But the one who just opens his lips and you know, says what comes out and isn't really thinking about the consequences or the fact that he could do harm through his speech, that uh, can ultimately cause him harm and ultimately be a destruction to him. Okay, let me pause there. Naomi, welcome. Glad you were able to, uh, to make it on. And, uh, yeah. Okay. So, then Rabbi Moskowitz asked the question, how do you become a Yosher? I mean, here if this verse is talking about a Tom, a guy that's on a level where he needs to learn, 
and he wants to become, you know, a person who's thinking wisely and acting wisely and has a love of truth and a desire to learn and so forth. He asked the question, how do you get like that? How do you become a Yosher? And he suggested one technique for this, uh, and there are probably you know, others, but he said one, one technique is this. At the end of the day, take a period of quiet time and think over the day's events. And you can then start seeing where you made mistakes and how you made those mistakes. This is about, this process is about analysis. It is not about beating yourself up with guilt and shame. The point here is to analyze why did you make the mistake? You know, if you go back and look and think, well, I shouldn't have said that to that guy, or, uh, you know, I made that move and that wasn't really a very wise one, then you need to stop and analyze what caused you to make that mistake? What was the source of it? Was it some particular emotion that you have that you need to work on? How exactly did that happen? And then, what steps can I take to ensure that that mistake never happens again? How do I fix it? Uh, not, not by muscling myself or shaming myself or beating myself up, but how do I go about undoing the cause of that emotion so I don't make that mistake? Part of the work that I do in my, my day job is to lead trainings in project management. Uh, and we often talk about uh, the concept at the end of a project called project review. And that review can center around three very simple questions, which you could apply in this, you know, in your own situation. First question is number one, what worked? And the reason you would ask that is because, well, the stuff that worked is the stuff you want to keep doing. Uh, and then the obvious question that comes right after that is, well, what didn't work? Well, I was doing fine in this situation until that guy looked crosswise at me, and then I got angry at him, and I said something, and I shouldn't have opened my mouth, and da 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 Okay, so that didn't work. And so then I, I have a sense for what didn't work, and I can start to look for causes, and well, why did I react that way, and what was behind that reaction, and so on and so forth. And then the third question that we ask uh, is around what would we do differently next time. You know, if we're on a project and we figured out what worked, what didn't work, what would we do differently next time? Well, we'd plan ahead more, we'd do a better project plan, whatever it might be. So, um, we can apply the same type of thing when we go into our own lives and at the end of the day look back at, you know, what happened. And when we get into the issue of what didn't work, it's very interesting if you are involved at all in, in teamwork, working with teams on a project. When things don't go well, it's very easy for a team to go to blame. They will shift into a blame mode and, or can and say, well, if so-and-so had just done this, everything would have been fine. And so let's just blame so-and-so. And the reason we didn't make the deadline of the project it was it was so-and-so. Or the reason we were over budget, it was so-and-so. Or the reason this part failed because of so-and-so. But the trouble is that produces a very negative atmosphere in the team and doesn't necessarily lead to a true solution. Uh, all it, it leads to is kind of finger pointing and, well, it wasn't my fault, it was so-and-so. But a much more powerful question in a situation like that 
that you can ask is, what system or process do we need to put into place so that this problem never happens again? What system or process do we need to put into place so that this problem never happens again? And that same question and approach can work in my personal analysis as well at the end of the day. I can say, well, you know, instead of beating myself up uh, because, you know, I got mad at a guy in a store, I can ask myself, well, what steps would I need to take or what process could I put in place in my own life so that I wouldn't get angry in a situation like that again? And what that does is it shifts the focus and takes me out of blame and recrimination and, you know, beating myself up and puts my focus on finding a practical solution for me in that situation. I mean, maybe the solution is that I need to review the basic ideas about anger every day for a month. Um, maybe I need to remind myself that that guy in the store or whoever it was that uh, you know was the catalytic agent for my anger is acting out of his own issues and that I'm not responsible for his behavior. Whatever it is for me or for you, that's what you need to focus on. And that way we create solutions for ourselves and can move ourselves forward and be part of essentially the first part of this verse, which is he who guards his mouth guards his soul. Any questions on that verse or any part of that process? Okay, I'm going to take no response as uh, an affirmative that we can move ahead, but if you do have a question, uh, please speak up and, uh, and let me know. Okay, so let's move on to the next verse. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4. It says, The soul of a sluggard lusts and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent will be fattened. This is Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4. The soul of a sluggard lusts and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent will be fattened. Okay? So, what kind of questions might we ask around that verse? The soul of a sluggard lusts and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent will be fattened. Any ideas? Well, here are a couple. First of all, what's a sluggard? Okay, and Naomi, thank you. Um, how will the soul be affected in a sluggard, and how will the soul be affected in the diligent? Because it talks about the soul of the diligent uh, at the end, and the soul of the sluggard at the beginning, so it's obviously talking about you know, the soul of the individual. So, um, how is the soul going to be affected in each of those people? And, uh, Peggy, you suggested that a sluggard would be a lazy person. Okay. Uh, and 
we'll come back in, in just a second and see if we can um, cover that off a little more. And you've also mentioned a diligent person is hardworking, studies Torah, pursues God. Um, maybe, uh, but the diligent and hardworking part, uh, diligent and hardworking are kind of synonymous. It seems to be talking about somebody who uh, works hard. Now, whether they're studying Torah and pursuing God, uh, we would hope, although I'm not so sure in this case the verse necessarily is, is getting that, because it doesn't say that, because all it says is diligent. But, but let's hold that thought. That's a good thought, and we'll see if that, uh, if that works itself out here. Um, Naomi, you've asked, who's the sluggard and who's diligent? Good. You know, who are these people? Um, and uh, how do they use uh, their souls for these things? Okay. And I guess a, a further maybe clarification on a couple of these is uh, that I would add, why does the soul of the sluggard lust and have nothing? And why is the soul of the diligent fattened? So again, I would like to uh, turn to Rabbi Moskowitz's interpretation here. And Peggy, this gets to your point. Uh, yeah, very good. What are they doing and, and not doing? Um, Rashi says that if a person desires the good and doesn't have it, then he's lazy. So, if a person desires the bad, he's evil, but that's not lazy. There's a difference between an evil person and a lazy person. In this case, Rashi's saying the lazy person is a person who wants what's good for him, but he doesn't have it. Uh, and so he's apparently not putting forth some effort to get that. That's as distinct from a person who desires what's bad. That's what we call an evil person. So the problem with the lazy person, the sluggard, is the ideas are not real to him. He, in other words, he, he, he desires the good, but it's like the ideas aren't real enough to him to make him act. And so he has to become a person for whom the ideas are real. So there's a, there, I mean, there's a real difference between hearing an idea and really getting that it's, uh, that it's really true and will really impact you. So uh, if there's a difference between hearing an idea or even being able to say an idea and having it be real enough to you that you act on it. Okay? So the definition of lazy uh, or the sluggard is not that he desires evil, but that he desires good but it isn't real to him, so he doesn't act upon it even though he knows it in his mind. And, and Terry and Laura, you said he does nothing and expects much but gets nothing in the end. Yes. He's, he's like expecting the good, wants the good, but he's not making the active steps to get the good. Okay, and Peggy, you said, what are they doing or not doing? Yes, I'm assuming that, that's referring to the, the difference between the sluggard and the, and the diligent. Now, the diligent, the ideas are real to him, so he acts on them. Okay, and, and so his soul will be fattened, in other words, um, uh, his, his soul will get what it needs and be satisfied whereas the soul of the lazy person yeah he wants it 
you know, as as you said, he expects much. He's he's lusting for it, but he has nothing. <coughs> Excuse me, because the ideas aren't real enough for him to act on it. Okay, any questions so far? Okay, so then here's a practical question. If the ideas are real to you, but you're not acting on them, how do you change that? And here's an approach that Rabbi Moskowitz suggested. You look at all the benefits associated with doing the thing, like maybe exercise. Like, you know, you know you're not getting enough exercise, and you know you need to exercise, and the idea is, and you've heard all the facts that exercise is good for you, and helps your heart, and all that stuff, but for some reason, you still, you know, aren't doing it. He said, look at all the benefits associated with doing that thing, and the consequences of not doing it, and paste them in a book, and then review them. Okay? And one day, unless you have some addiction or emotion that's preventing you, one day you'll get up and do the exercise. Not out of guilt, but just because you know you need to do it. In other words, it's not like you read the things over and you beat yourself and say, you know, you really ought to go get out and exercise, because look at all this material you wrote down, you know, it'll, it'll do this for your cholesterol and da-da-da-da-da. It's you just review the ideas over and over again, and pretty soon the ideas become so real to you that you get up and exercise just because you know it's the thing to do. See, it has to come from where you really see the value. So the verse is talking about the difference between a lazy person and a diligent person. A lazy person sees the good, but it isn't real enough for him to act on it in order to get it. So he lives without, without the benefits of, uh, of whatever it was he wanted. The diligent person, or the, 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 without the benefits of, of you know, the good, the diligent person sees the good, and it's real enough so that he acts on it, so his soul is fattened, and he ends up being satisfied. Okay, any questions on this verse, or the concept? This is a very important theme that keeps coming up in Proverbs a lot. This whole idea that the ideas have to be real to you, and you can't force that upon yourself. Uh, I think we, we live in a society where, uh, you know, sometimes in certain circles we, we do that. We think, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll force myself to, to go do that thing. And the trouble is that, you know, you can force yourself part of the time, but in the end, if, if you're battling against your own self, you're going to be in great conflict. Uh, and generally, it's probably a better approach just to lay out what the ideas are, and then keep going over and over and over them. Uh, and one day, that sinks in enough, uh, you know, like water in a parched desert, uh, where seeds begin to grow, and the ideas take root, and pretty soon you start doing stuff uh, in, a, um, in a natural way. That's why these classes and, and going over these ideas in Proverbs is so very important. It's not that we should, you know, go through some ideas in the class and then 
walk away and say, okay, now I gotta make myself do this. I I I've got to do it. You know, like a like a, a muscling yourself into it. It's just you go over the ideas, and each time as we go through a class like this, we see the ideas in a slightly different way, and they get a little more embedded and a little more embedded, and pretty soon you find yourself starting to think differently. You start making decisions differently, uh, and it's it's like a drip, drip, drip process uh, of transformation. And I can tell you from my own personal experience that that's uh, that's what happened to me, and has happened to a number of other people that have. You know, going down this road. It's not about muscling, but it's just about going over the ideas, and eventually they become real to you, and they start to affect your life uh, in a very positive way. Okay. Uh, if there are no questions, let's move on. So we are now in verse five of chapter thirteen, Proverbs chapter thirteen, verse five. And this one reads, A false thing a tzaddik hates, and the wicked insults. A false thing a tzaddik hates, and the wicked insults. Now, an tzaddik is a, is a righteous person. So a false thing a righteous person hates, and the wicked insults. There's one big looming question out of this verse that I would invite you to take a shot at. Um, okay, Peggy, what's a false thing? All right, we'll, and we'll, we can talk about that. I think essentially that is uh, anything that is not truth or not in line with reality. So that would be a deception, uh, in most cases a lie, um, Anything false, scheming, conniving, uh, if somebody's saying an untrue idea, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but is there anything else that troubles you about this verse? Any other big question to ask? A false thing exotic hates and the wicked insults. How about this? What does the first half have to do with the second half? I mean, there doesn't seem to be any connection between these two things. Because the first half is talking about a righteous person hates false things, which, you know, you could say is, is you know, somewhat obvious. And, and the wicked insults. Well, gee, those are kind of like two different things. You'd think it would be a false thing a righteous person hates and a, a false thing uh, a wicked person likes or, you know, something like that. But this seems a little, a little odd. So, Rabbi Moskowitz uh, talked about it this way. He said, in this verse, there are two ways of going. You can either try to define an insult or the truth. And he's suggesting that what we need to do is try to define the truth. So let's look at this question about what's truth and what's reality. 
he made an interesting point that people think that objects are holy but in Torah there is no object that is holy in and of itself what makes it holy is the halacha the Torah law makes it into something holy and holy means uh, best English translation I know of is separated uh, for a specific purpose uh, so the object itself has no power there are no powers out there there is just the laws of nature and God's hashkacha that is his providence so the object's value is only insofar as an idea is concerned which gets to the very interesting point of you know which is the sort of the higher reality a physical thing or the idea behind it and I'll suggest to you that the ideas are where the reality is and the physicality is just a manifestation of those ideas so the idea of something being holy is only made that way because of God's uh, God's Torah is the halacha. So and the so the object's value only has value insofar as an idea is concerned. Now, when you insult someone, you aren't recognizing the other person. You're only recognizing your own. Okay, when a person insults somebody else, it's because uh, they're trying to satisfy their own needs. They're not thinking about the other person. All right. So the fool doesn't see the overall picture. He only sees himself, and he's lacking the truth because he doesn't have the whole picture. The whole picture, the truth, lies in universal concepts. And the ultimate universal concept is God. Okay? And Terry and Laurie, you've mentioned, uh, if I'm understanding this right, yeah, the, the wicked magnifies bad things and, and keeps it going to hurt others. Yeah, the wicked person wants to hurt the other person. And if we think about, well, why would he want to do that, or she... It would be because of some personal motive. I think people often insult other people in order to put them down and make themselves feel more superior uh, because they're trying to feed that emotional part of them that wants to, you know, say, I'm cool and you're not, or I'm great and you're not. And in order to make myself great, I'm going to put down you and make you into sort of this lower life form by insulting you which makes me somehow feel better. It's a total false sense, but that's the, that's the idea. So we have to get involved in the universals, in the concepts. And after learning Torah law, Mishle, the book of Proverbs, is the first step in pulling us out of the particulars, the specifics, and helping us to start see uh, start to see the universals. <clears throat> okay. Any questions on that so far?
Okay, so let me just make a comment about methodology here and what we did. <clears throat> so in the first half, it talks about false things, the opposite of which is a true thing. And then the second part talks about insults. So Rabbi Moskowitz suggests from a, from a methodology of analysis standpoint, when you're, when you're looking at a situation like this, whenever there's a question as to one side versus the other of the verse, you have to take one of the two as a subject and fit the other one into that uh, other side as a, as a subset of that. So in this case, the righteous see reality and they hate a false thing because it's not in line with reality. When the wicked person insults, it shows that he isn't recognizing the other person, just his own self and his own desires. So it shows that he doesn't see reality. He just sees himself. He's missing out on reality, which is the whole picture of life. So the verse is showing us two opposite views of life here. The life of the righteous, who sees the big picture, which is reality, and who hates anything that isn't in line with reality. And then the wicked, whose view of life is so small that he only sees himself and his desires, and he doesn't even see the other person as an equal member of humanity. Because if he did, he, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't put him down. So he's completely missing out on seeing reality, which is the big picture of life. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, on to Proverbs 13, chapter 6. 13, chapter 6. And it reads like this. Righteousness, or correct acts, will guard the perfect way, and wickedness distorts sin. Righteousness will guard the perfect way, and wickedness distorts sin. So, what are the questions? Proverbs 13:6 Righteousness or correct acts will guard the perfect way, and wickedness distorts sin. Any thoughts on questions? Okay, Naomi, you've asked how charity will guard in whom. Now, I am not seeing the word charity in this verse. So, I'm just looking ahead here. It may be a translation. And how evil will corrupt. Yeah, wickedness distorts sin. Grab my... Hard scroll and just make sure that we're on track here. Uh, righteousness will guard one who's perfect in his way, but wickedness will corrupt the sinner. Yeah, it seems like the the translations that I'm running into have that as uh, as righteousness. 
And Rabbi Moskowitz translated it as wickedness distorts sin on the second half. Now, again, just to remind everyone, sometimes uh, different commentators and different people uh, interpret the verses differently. Uh, and they will translate them even a little bit differently, depending on, you know, the uh, way a particular word is handled. So, um, there could be other, you know, legitimate interpretations. Okay, Naomi, thank you. So the questions that I would be tempted to ask on this verse are, how do correct acts guard the perfect way? In other words, it says righteousness or correct acts will guard the perfect way. Well, what, is it, what exactly does that mean? And what does it mean, and maybe, Naomi, this is what you're bringing up, what does it mean that wickedness distorts sin? I mean, wickedness is sin. So how could wickedness distort sin? And there are two interpretations of that. Um, and again, I'm uh, relying on uh, Rabbi Moskowitz here. Two interpretations. One says that wickedness distorts a man of sin. Uh, Rashi says a man of sin is completely wicked. So, how does that fit with the first part? Uh, we would have to read this that good deeds guard the righteous person's perfection. And the Vilna Gaon says that the distortion of sin causes wickedness. So he's interpreting the verse differently. Okay? And Rabbi Moskowitz asked a very interesting question that I think is, is very fair to ask. How, what gives the sages the right to twist and turn the verse in order to make sense out of it? So he went back and gave us a little history and said that Chaim Brisk um, perfected a new method of thinking in Torah. Um, Brisk was the city that he dwelt in. And he showed this to uh, Yisrael Salanter, the father of Musser. You may have heard his name, the Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Uh, and uh, Rabbi Salanter said, this is the Torah of the future. So how could he say something like that? I mean, how can they, I mean, it sounds like they're like changing it all around, making things, you know, brand new or whatever. And Rabbi Cutler, who was one of the greatest three Torah scholars of the last generation, uh, said that in the past great generations, they had all this in mind, but they didn't define what the steps were. But now, even in our generation, we have to be more precise, even though in previous generations they were doing it. So, it's not that you can change a verse arbitrarily, but there is a system for doing this, and that's why the sages have the right to do that, because they, uh, as I understand it, they understood the system. So, uh, there are some different things that we encounter in uh, interpreting uh, uh, Proverbs. Uh, one is metaphors. And so Rabbi Moskowitz su suggests that if if something is in a verse but it's physically impossible, uh, then you make it into a metaphor. Uh, an example of that might be one we've run into um, 
where it says charity saves from death. Okay, if you took it absolutely literally, that would say someone who gives charity will never die. But that's not what the verse means. That's physically impossible. So it's a metaphor. It means something in that realm, but we have to figure out what it is. Um, so if it's physically impossible, we would make it in, interpreted as a metaphor, or if it's philosophically impossible that the Torah would hold that position, then you would make it into a metaphor. And, and these two, uh, this, is, this is the uh, understanding of the eerie. So when you listen to an interpretation of a proverb, uh, or you know another part of Torah, Tanakh, you need to trust your teacher, and then you need to test out his methodologies to see if they're good. So you're sort of both trusting and testing all at the same time. Now, the first way of interpreting the verse is that we're talking about a tzaddik. Okay, a righteous person will guard the perfect way. The second half says that the wickedness of a wicked person distorts his mind. So that's what it seems to be getting at. It's about that the wickedness of a wicked person actually distorts his mind. Wickedness is, in certain ways, irrational. Uh, and either it's going to cause you consequences in a negative way, or it's going to cause you to live a contradictory life. And my understanding of wickedness is that it's not the same as just committing a sin. Wickedness is purposefully focusing your life on self-centeredness and your emotional desires your distorted way of thinking. It is a decision, if you will, to go down that particular road in life. By contrast, the righteous person has made a decision to go down the road of reality, and he focuses his attention on the world of ideas and the world of truth, not the self-centered approach to the world of the emotions. So all of the other people are somewhere in the middle between these. They haven't made a decision, and they tend to blow with the winds of their environment and circumstances. In fact, you could classify those people as mediocre. So, then there's the second interpretation, uh, that the distortion of sin makes you wicked. So in that case, sin is something that, um, that only thought makes wrong. In other words, the reason you have to work through your mind is that the emotions don't make distinctions. And if you don't live a rational life, once you take a step without a rational reason, you lose out. It's, it's, uh, it's like exercising. If you say, you know, I'm going to exercise uh, 30 minutes every day. Every day I'm going to exercise 30 minutes. And then one day you say, well, I'll just give myself a break. I don't feel like it you'll ultimately fail because you've now kind of broken uh, the, the chain, uh, so to speak. So you need to live a rational life, and if you find that you've you know, stumbled and made a mistake, then, as we've discussed in the previous verses, you need to go back and figure out, okay, what did I do uh, that caused that, and then climb back on and you know, start leading a rational life again. And if you, you know, make a mistake, analyze what caused me to make that mistake. And, you know, take care of that and get back on. So the emotions will move you in directions that you don't want to move without realizing it. 
So, um, sin itself, according to this interpretation, isn't wicked, but it's irrational and it has negative consequences that you don't want to have. Uh, in fact, I believe it was uh, Rabbi Chait who, when talking about uh, the, the sins, said uh, that part of the, the that it's not about um, you know the, I guess guilt and terrible feeling. It's about the the sin is a waste of time, and it's a waste of time that you could be devoting in a much better direction, in a much better area, you know, toward the world of ideas and the world of study. Uh, so it's essentially wasting the time uh, that you have available here. Okay, any questions on that verse? Okay, and Terry and Lori, uh, you, you said charity is a good thing for the giver. Uh, yes, it is. Um, and uh, sin with an evil intent uh, is destruction. Yes, and, and what that will do is, you know, ultimately you, of course, make mistakes and then you reinforce bad thinking and you're essentially going down a road that is, you know, literally leading toward, uh, you know, destruction if it gets to its, its ultimate case. Okay, and thank you, Naomi. All right, I think we have time. Um, I'm going to cover two verses uh, together here uh, in the time that we have left. Uh, Proverbs 13.7 and 13.8. Uh, and 13.7 says, Some pretend to be rich and have nothing, and others act poor and are very wealthy. Some pretend to be rich and have nothing, and others act poor and are very wealthy. And 13.8 says, A man's wealth may redeem his soul, but only if the poor hear no chastisement. Okay. So what are the questions? Some pretend to be rich and have nothing, and others act poor and are very wealthy. A man's wealth may redeem his soul, but only if the poor hear no chastisement. Any thoughts about questions? Okay, Naomi, both are action verbs, but why do they have so... Uh, such contradictory manners. Okay? Pretending to be rich, have nothing. Others act poor and are wealthy. Man's wealth may redeem his soul. But only if the poor hear no chastisement. Yeah, those are kind of odd combinations, aren't they? What does it mean for the poor to hear chastisement? And, and how does a wealth redeem a man's soul and only if the poor hear no chastisement? That seems rather odd. Uh, a very strange juxtaposition there. Um, and why would someone pretend to be rich, especially if he has nothing, in the first half of seven? And why would someone act 
poor in the second half of seven if they are in fact wealthy. So again, I'm turning to Rabbi Moskowitz here. And he says there are three possibilities for these verses, and they're all in Rashi. First possibility is there are people who like to pretend they're rich. Um, and so people come to, le to collect money from them. Um, I mean, when a person acts above his position in life, his station, if you will, people expect more of him. Uh, and so, as an example, I mean, if you like to pretend that you're wealthy, then probably people who are seeking out wealth are going to come and knock at your door. So, but people expect less of you if you act below your position. And so sometimes it is better to act below your station in life, because the expectations that people will put on you are less. Okay? Now, that sounds like a person's trying to get out of responsibility. And the, the truth is, if you have responsibility, you have to do it. But you do it out of a clear understanding that it's your responsibility as part of God's system, not because a community forced it on you. So it may be in certain circumstances better to uh, you know, act poorly even though you have some wealth. Depends on the situation. But there are some people who like to pretend they're rich and they don't have anything, or very little perhaps. The second interpretation is, uh, is the, verse, the first verse by itself. And the translation in that case would be, some make themselves wealthy and they started with nothing, and some started with wealth and make themselves poor. So some people make themselves wealthy and they started with nothing, and some people started with wealth and they make themselves poor. See, some people have a business sense. And Mishle, the book of Proverbs, can help you to learn how to think through those kinds of things. And so the person that learns how to operate in the world and how to interact with other people and do so successfully and think through consequences and analyze ideas, a person like that can be successful in business uh, and can start with nothing and build up great riches. On the other hand, someone may have a bunch of wealth but not know how to handle it and could end up in the opposite situation where they started with a lot of money and then they make mistakes or they squander it or they fritter it away. Fritter it away. Uh, this can happen sometimes with um, people who are, say, born into a wealthy family and they never had to work for it and then they inherit a lot. Uh, or we see that, interestingly, with uh, people who win lotteries. There have been a number of studies on people who win lotteries and it seems that uh, a, a large number of them end up uh, you know, losing the money or making very poor decisions and not having much uh, at the end of a very short period of time, maybe just uh, one or two years. And, uh, and their lives are more miserable than before. Do you think, how could that happen? One million dollars. But if, uh, if they don't know the proper way to handle that, how to deal with 
people and life situations and analyze thinking and consequences, people can make really, really stupid mistakes. Um, somebody once made an interesting comment, it was not in a Torah context, uh, but that wealth will basically make you more of what you already are. Uh, if you're, you know, a really warm and kind and generous and charitable person, it'll give you opportunities to be warm and kind and generous and charitable. If you're wicked and evil, it'll give you opportunities to be wicked and evil. And it will basically magnify the character traits uh, that you have, and you'll make decisions in the same way you have before, except on a much broader and grander financial scale uh, than you did before. And so if you made good decisions before, then you'll probably make good decisions afterwards, and if not, uh, then you may not do that with wealth either. The third interpretation is that the second half of verse 8 is connected to the first half, uh, as we see um, in the uh, Art Scroll translation, um, that when it talks about only if the poor, a you know, man's wealth may redeem his soul, but only if the poor hear no chastisement. Uh, Naomi, you said if you don't scold a poor person, uh, you're blessed. To, this gets to that. To know how to speak to a poor person, you have to think outside of yourself and be able to be aware of other people. A lot of people think through their own emotions. In other words, that's their like, their like magnifying glass on the world. But rather than just seeing life through your own set of emotions, you have to be kind and objective and see the poor person uh, without your own personal filters. You have to train yourself to take an objective view of other people uh, and a certain sense uh, of kindness comes with that understanding, uh, that, that intelligence that uh, you, know, you may have used to uh, help you make a lot of money. That sense of kindness with understanding will lead you to not chastise a poor person, but rather figure out how you can help them. So if you think about someone that has money, and they turn around, and maybe even they give charity, but they chastise the poor person, you know, well, I'm going to give you this, but you really ought to go get a job, you know, or something like that. What does that say about the character of the person that has the money? They, they see the world through their own filter. They don't recognize that there's a bigger sense of reality out there and that different people have different circumstances and have to work hard and struggle with different kinds of problems. And so the, the, the righteous person will see, may have, may have wealth, but they see people with a, with a certain um, objectivity and kindness and recognizing, you know, we all get stuff we have to deal with. And so... Uh, they would not chastise a poor person, but they'll use their wealth uh, to try to help that person. And they'll, they'll be thinking not about speaking harsh words to them, but how can I help this person? Um, that mindset doesn't look down on them. It doesn't see them as you know, different than themselves, but sees them also as part of the system. And so since they're part of the system, and I happen to have the means to do so, it's my responsibility to try to help them. So that's how that outlook will uh, redeem the person's soul. And that's how the verse can say, a man's wealth may redeem his soul, but only if the poor hear no chastisement. In other words, 
that how he deals with giving charity and using that wealth can redeem his soul, but if only if he's got the right mindset. And if he's got that mindset of kindness and understanding and helping the poor, then he's in a position to uh, uh, you know, get redemption of his soul, as this verse uh, indicates. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, in that case, we will stop here for the evening. And I appreciate you all joining us. Hope you can uh, join us next week.